So I brought you on today because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about sunlight. And I've been recently listening to listening to all your podcasts with Andres. Okay. The, the YouTube videos where you've been going over sunlight and its importance. And I don't think people really understand how important sunlight can be for our overall health, our sleeps, our digestion, our mood, our energy, yep. all those things. So I, in the past, I used to like listen to Alex Triana and Alex Kiekel and all those guys, and they would talk about sunlight. But um, I feel like you're the new, the new man when it comes to talking about the sun and its importance on our physiology. So um, I yeah, want to start yeah, off. Absolutely. I would like to kind of just start off by asking you, like, what is within the sun? Like, what is the sun giving off that is so kind of powerful and important for the human body? Okay, okay. Um, we'll start small, right? What is the smallest that it's giving off? It's incredibly important for human biology. Um, number one, the thing that the, the sun is burning is hydrogen, okay? It's burning hydrogen. That's also coincidentally what our mitochondria are using for tunneling is, is hydrogen. That's what the mitochondria pumps across the electron transport chain, across the membrane to create the proton gradient, which is essential for saying that is the first cell that ever got made billions of years ago. It's using the same concept and the, and the, the same element that the sun is using. Okay. And here's the, the interesting thing about, uh, hydrogen. Hydrogen naturally comes in two flavors. There's a third flavor, but that's a man-made flavor. So we'll concentrate on two. And I'll just briefly say what the third one is. The first one is protium or light hydrogen, which is just named H plus. Okay. And then the second version of it is called deuterium or heavy hydrogen. Okay. And the third one is tritium, and that's radioactive. That one can only be made by man, and that is actually has literally has to do with uh, making nuclear weapons. Okay, so that third one doesn't actually naturally occur really ever, but the first two do. Okay, and that's crucial to understand because the difference between the two is not uh, that they're two separate molecules; it's that one has a neutron in the middle, which makes it heavier. So mass of heavy hydrogen is about twice as heavy as light hydrogen. That is incredibly important because hydrogen forms a lot of chemical bonds in our biology. The vast majority have some kind of hydrogen in them. And um, hydrogen is freely pumped across the electron transport chain. Um, and if it's heavier, that means that the processes get slowed down because it takes more energy to move more mass. Right. So it's a way for the cell to regulate certain periods of the day or certain outcomes during the season when there is more heavy hydrogen in the things that you eat, for example, versus different times of the year. So it, it's a way of speeding up or slowing down cellular metabolism. Uh, another way to think about it, which is a little bit more, I, I think a little bit more abstract, but people will easily interpret this because they've all seen the movie The Matrix. Right. Um, so in the movie, The Matrix, reality is essentially ones and zeros, right? And and right now, right? Like the only reason why you can see me is because your computer is interpreting ones and zeros and displaying them on your screen, right? Everybody can kind of fundamentally understand that that is what technology is doing. It's using two things, a one and a zero and a specific on and off sequence that makes a certain outcome. Nature has already done that. That is what reality is as we currently experience it. The ones in the zeros, they're not numbers. The ones in the zeros is light hydrogen and heavy hydrogen. Okay. So, for example, uh, when you are young, more heavy hydrogen actually speeds up growth rates, right? So things that actually uh, uh, consume more heavy hydrogen molecules and, and heavy hydrogen is 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 a easy way to just say any kind of plant can grow very quickly when it uses a lot of heavy hydrogen. So things like fruits, things like carbohydrate sources that grow seasonally in high sunlight environments, they naturally have more hydrogen, more heavy hydrogen in their chemical bonds. When you consume them, you're also going to manifest most of your growth in that time. When, when, uh, do you have any kids? 
I do not know. Okay. Well, if you do have any kids, the thing that you'll notice is in the summer, they grow a lot. They grow a lot. They eat the most amount of food at that point in time. Everybody dictates it with like, hey, uh, you know, they, they're consuming more food because there's more available and that's why they're growing. That's not necessarily not true, but there's also a molecular thing that's going on. And that's they're having more deuterium, more heavy hydrogen in their tissues that's actually creating a much bigger electromagnetic field effect. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with bone being uh, a semiconductor. Uh, meaning that the way that bone gets thicker when you load it is actually because you're compressing it and it causes a piezoelectric current. So the magnetic field around the bone gets a little bit bigger, which causes the deposits to get thicker. Okay. So um, go ahead. The, cause you said before that the, the heavier hydrogen actually kind of slows things down. And that's mm -hmm. kind of just cap counterintuitive in my mind to growth overall. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So when, when, when the, the, the cellular cycles get slowed down, right? Um, that means that you are going to need more external energy because now the cell is not as efficient. So that means consumption goes up, right? So that's why, uh, consumption of all energy substrates, right? But it's linked seasonally. The time of the year when you're going to have more heavy hydrogen, under natural circumstances, we're, we're not talking about modern day living. We're talking about, let's just go backwards 50 years when everybody basically didn't have a grocery store. The only things that you, you had access to were the foods that you cultivated and stored, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, seasonally, you are going to have more heavy hydrogen in your body during high sunlight environments, energy that you can put into your body. So energy production goes up while cellular metabolism is slower. Why is that important? Because of something called free radicals, right? The more, the, the faster the metabolism runs, the faster you can create free radicals. If you slow it down, free radical production goes down and you just supplement that lower production of energy internally from the cell by external energy. So that's why you can grow more because the, 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 the metabolism of the cell got slowed down for more deuterium uh, or heavy hydrogen. That also means that there's more mass there. So the electromagnetic field of the cell is now bigger. So when you consume more energy, it's causing more substrates to accumulate, more tissue to ac accumulate in general. So it, it coincides with getting more actual surface area, right? Let's just talk about muscle tissue, right? You're going to get more ability to get a bigger muscle tissue if you're consuming lots of energy, but at the same time, you have more deuterium in it. So on the flip side, if you are looking for longevity, then you want to actually move it in the opposite direction. You want to consume things that have less deuterium. That's where, um, you know, as, as, uh, you know, the French paradox goes, they tend to eat a lot of fat. They tend to eat a lot of red meat. They tend to eat a whole lot of things that are actually deuterium depleted. That's why they have bigger longevity, even though they tend to smoke, tend to drink wine, tend to do all these things that are counterproductive towards longevity. But the thing is, the thing that's uh, speeding up cellular metabolism uh, and helping them live longer has nothing to do with you know, their activity outside and things of that nature. It's the fact that they tend to just consume things that are naturally deuterium depleted. Animal products are naturally deuterium depleted because anything that you store has already gone uh, as an animal, has already gone through cellular metabolism. So that means the hydrogen, the heavy hydrogen has been uh, kind of moved out of the cell itself, right? So a fat cell will have deuterium depleted fat in it versus uh, and, and your body has mechanisms in here to do this. It's at the mitochondria where the TCA cycle has all these steps in it. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice in the steps, water gets interjected in and around and out of that cycle. The water is hydrogen, right? Two, two hydrogen molecules, one oxygen molecule. Um, so the hydrogen molecules in this cycle, the reason why there's so many steps is so that Heavy hydrogen gets pushed out and into the periphery. So you should, as a human being, have most of your deuterium, most of your heavy hydrogen in your blood, in your blood and in your surfaces, because that's actually what's going to uh, 
interact with the environment, aka the sun. Remember how I said the sun is burning hydrogen? Mm -hmm. So you want hydrogen or deuterium to be in your surfaces and in your blood because it's the wireless communication to the source. I know this sounds really wild and really kind of offhanded, but that's actually at the base level, something that the sun is giving you that you're replicating, right? Think of it like, like pairing your Bluetooth, right? Like pairing, if you have a watch and you don't pair it with your, with your phone, it's kind of useless because they have to function on the same frequency. That's what hydrogen is doing in the biology because it exists in the sun and it comes through in sunlight. Now we can expand that a little bit. We could go way deeper in that, but that's a lot more so physics and science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we don't, we can just leave it at, as that. Okay. Hydrogen is incredibly important. It's tied to soil, the, the sun itself and the seasons of how the sun controls essentially photosynthesis on the planet. Okay. Now, as a mammal, right? So we're not plants, but we evolved. You know, if you believe in evolution, we evolved from plants at some point in time, right? There were plants, then multicellular things that can walk and are not connected to the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Most people fundamentally kind of know that, that there is some truth there. But the thing that they forget is that photosynthesis evolved first, and then somehow we didn't pick up on that or carry that over. And that's a lie. We actually have mammal photosynthesis. And that is because of melanin. Melanin takes sunlight and harvests it and lets your body do essentially free work, right? Think of it like a solar panel. A solar panel is very passive, but it can produce lots of energy. That's what melanin is doing. And melanin is not just on your skin. It's not, it's in your eyes. It's in your hair. It's also in your nervous system. In fact, that's actually the most crucial part of mel of the melanin story. It's not what's on your surfaces. It's what's inside your nervous system. You have a place in your brain called the substantia nigra. And in, in Latin, that means black mass. So it's literally a black mass in your brain. If you cut a brain open, you don't even need a microscope. You would see that it's black um, and it's dark mass. And that's all melanin because melanin uh, acts just like a solar panel. In fact, they're investigating melanin they found that it is extremely good at collecting sunlight and charge separating it, right? Because sunlight, when it interacts with melanin, the melanin takes any water that's touching it and charge separates it. In other words, uh, do you know what a hydrogen fuel cell car is? I've heard of it. I don't know the specifics. Yeah. So essentially the car has a tank of water and they put an electrode in it and run electricity through it and it separates hydrogen from the oxygen, right? So the exhaust out of the car is the oxygen and the hydrogen goes into the engine and gets burned up because it's, it's combustible. Okay. Your melanin does that at the cellular level. So it charge separates any cellular water that's touching your melanin. When sunlight hits the melanin, it charge separates that water into hydrogen and oxygen. The difference is your body can use both of them, right? Oxygen goes to your mitochondria to run the electron transport chain and the hydrogen gets pumped across the membrane to create the proton motive force. So your body is actively taking advantage of that capability of melanin anywhere that you have melanin. And the most important part is your nervous system, your nervous system, your brain. You know, there are lots of people have said it all starts with the brain and they're not wrong. It's your nervous system and your brain that run the show. And the thing that gives it a lot of free energy is melanin interacting with sunlight, specifically with your eyes, because the black pupils in your eyes are melanin. And that's what goes back to the retinal pigment, uh, the retinal epithelial pathway goes from your eye to the CNS, to the pituitary, directly into there. And that is, it's essentially a big photo collector. It's collecting all sorts of sunlight energy um, and, and frequencies. So, is that why? Is that why it's not like it's not recommended to wear sunglasses when you're outside walking if you're trying to get these benefits? Correct, correct. It's because you're circumventing the information that the brain is needing to pick up, mm -hmm. right? Because your brain is actively trying to decipher uh, how much UVA light is there, how much UVB light is there, how much infrared is there, what's the intensity of this? Because it directly tells the brain 
how much free energy you're going to be getting. Mm-hmm. Right. And if it's sensing, if it's chronically sensing a lack of light, what it's starting to do is it's starting to taint, change pituitary hormones to make you seek out more external energy. So wearing sunglasses can potentially make you hungrier unnecessarily. Interesting. Right? Because at the end of the day, in order to be a very efficient mechanism, right? Let's talk about just, let's, let's dehumanize it. Let's just say that you're a machine, right? You want to be as efficient as possible. You don't want to waste energy and you don't want to spend time seeking out energy when you could be doing other things, right? So that's the, that's the role of your skin, your eyes and your gut, right? Your skin is essentially the solar panel for your brain. Your brain is the master controller and it dictates, um, uh, digestive, uh, enzymes and things of that nature and neurotransmitters through the gut brain axis. So when your brain starts lacking the correct information, it starts making you behave in incorrect ways, especially specifically around food. Um, so that, that is one of the behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. It starts to change behaviors. Uh, uh, so there's the sunglasses thing, right? Like if you're outside in, in a lot of sunlight and you have sunglasses on, uh, your brain, for example, might tell the skin or might better way to say it might not tell the skin. Hey, we have a whole hell of a lot of sunlight. Let's, uh, actually change the, the lipid rafts in the cell membranes on the skin to protect it. It won't do that if you're actively suppressing that signal from the eyes. The lipid rafts that I'm talking about is the omega-3 content inside of your cell membranes, specifically on your surfaces. Um, because omega-3 lipids, uh, omega-3 lipids, when they interact with sunlight, they get broken down into, uh, positive breakdown products called docosinoids and elvenoids. Those are protective against solar damage. Bring those to the surface. It starts at the brain. If the brain doesn't understand that it's really high sunlight time, it won't do it as effectively. So you end up with less DHA or omega-3s at the surface, so you have less protection. So that's one way to, to kind of see how that challenges that. Go, go ahead. You were talking about in one of your podcasts before about how it's you can actually get some exposure in the morning, early morning, and then also later in the day. And the UV light from that light is actually less damaging potentially to the skin, or it actually helps prepare you for some of the, the heavier intensity-based light kind of around noon, 1 p.m. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So um, the other thing to understand is, uh, so, so yeah, that, this actually leads right into the next part of, of, of how the sun really affects biology is that the sun is never static. So the wavelengths coming through the sky are never static. At a low angle, UV light, specifically UVA and UVB, can't come through. Only infrared longer wavelengths of light come through. So the first three hours of the day, you're actually getting infrared therapy for free from the sun. So all these people spending a lot of money on infrared therapy saunas, infrared therapy boxes and stuff like that. You can get it for free every morning for three hours and every evening for three hours in those last three hours of the day and night or, or the, or the early morning and the, and the evening. And as the sun progresses, say at hour, four, the the angle of the sun goes up high enough that now UVA can come through. UVA, that, that turning point is very crucial. That's the point where most people, you don't want to miss it. You want to get that infrared with UVA. The reason why UVA is important is because it is a, around 380 nanometers. That's just the specifics of it. Um, that is actually tuned to restore photoreceptors. So all this damage, you know, people, you know, there's a lot of science on there of like, hey, UVB is actually damaging and can increase your risk and stuff. Like that. The problem is they're they're isolating that way, right? So the things that they say about UVB are actually true. The problem is, from the sun, UVB never exists by itself. It only exists as the sun progresses from uh, low angle to very high angle. And that's the only time of day where UVB will come through. If you've experienced infrared with UVA, you've actually prepped the mitochondria, the skin, and the brain to actually take advantage of the UVB. Mm -hmm. 
So if you, so a, a good way to, to say this is I'd rather you go outside in the morning than go outside in the middle of the day. Going outside in the middle of the day leaves your body unprepared for the stress. It's kind of like telling somebody, Hey, we're going to load up 500 pounds and I need you to deadlift it right now instead of warming up to it. Right. For, for a lot of people, that's not going to turn out very well. Now, some people will probably be totally fine and, and you will find that the, the same thing happens. But if you're somebody who is light skinned and predisposed to skin damage or predisposed to, uh, uh, too much oxidative stress just naturally because you naturally live indoors pretty much all the time. Not only are you, the reason why you'll be more predisposed is because you atrophied your skin. Just like you never train your biceps, right? Like if you never train your biceps and all of a sudden I ask you to do four sets of bicep curls, your biceps are going to be trashed, right? You're, you are going to not feel very well for a few days on your bicep. But if I tell you, Hey, just, just do like one set of biceps, you know, every day for, for the first three or four weeks and then we increase it gradually. That is what this is. This is just like training. It's just that people fundamentally scientists don't know a lot about training. They don't know about how specificity is king, right? Specificity. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's, that's what's, uh, what's driving, uh, all of these, uh, particular evolutionary changes is that mm -hmm. under normal circumstances, go ahead. When you say the skin is atrophied, are you referring to just like a, a lack of those omega uh, lipid layers and then also the melanin or is there other things as well? Both, both, both. Yeah. The, the lipid layers might not be atrophied if you regularly consume omega-3s, even if you live indoors. But the melanin, the melanin will be atrophied and the skin itself you will also notice that the skin itself becomes excuse me, come, becomes almost more transparent. It, it, it starts to literally lose the melanin to the point where the skin is almost more transparent. And that's what I mean by atrophy. When it gets to that level, now the sun can all of a sudden penetrate way deeper and cause more damage at deeper tissues. And that is problematic. That, so I'm not saying that um, the sun can't damage your skin. What I'm saying is proper sunlight exposure as we've described gets everybody from not doing well in the sun to doing very well in the sun does that make sense yeah definitely because um, a lot of people they believe that because they're fair skin because they have red hair like they're, they're not genetically able to tan but i myself being a fair skin person being in, from my ancestry from ireland and, and scotland um I've found that like just through what you've explained, kind of just gradually exposing yourself in small doses, I am able to get tan. I just have to do a little bit more intelligent. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually the best way to describe it. It doesn't mean that you can't. It means that you're more sensitive. So now you you, you have to approach it slightly different, right? Like me, I, I, I'm much darker, right? I, I, my, my heritage is from Mexico. I, I actually require about four to six hours of sunlight to make proper vitamin D for my skin level, to make proper sex hormones like pregnealone, DHEA, and things of that nature. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit. Um, because those, all of those vitamin D and all your baseline sex hormones come from UV light, the UV light penetrating your surface layer and sulfating the cholesterol. Right. And every, everybody kind of understands that with vitamin D, but you know, vitamin D is made from the sun. Um, and, uh, so are your sex hormones. And the darker your skin, the more sunlight you need to create that process effectively. And the lighter your skin, the, like you, you pointed out, right? Having light skin, red hair, that actually gives you the advantage to live somewhere where there is less light because you'll still get that same activation at lower light levels. So when you do get into high sunlight, environment like summertime or you happen to move down in latitude all you have to do is actually train it up via the way that we just described start in the early and evening parts of the day get more of those and that slowly starts to bring up melanin correctly in all your tissues so that you can handle the stronger forms of light and coincidentally you will not need as much sunlight to get proper vitamin D, to get proper sex hormone function, proper neurotransmitter function, and immune system function. Because uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of associate vitamin D with with uh, 
immune system. And they're not entirely wrong, but it's more of a proxy instead of direct, right? Just, just having high vitamin D does not necessarily coincide with really good immune system. They have found that out in, in places where they supplement uh, vitamin D orally to people. It doesn't come with the same outcome as naturally made vitamin D because vitamin D is a proxy for immune system tuning, not, uh, not necessarily the mediator of immune system. And I'll describe it in this way. Does it miss a bunch of steps? Like if you're just taking vitamin D supplementally, is that just... Uh, no, it's all actually all simpler than that. It's actually simpler than that. So I'll describe it. Um, your immune system is mainly in two places in your body, mainly T cells and B cells. T cells are mainly just behind the gut in something called the GOLT. Uh, and B cells are mainly at the surface layer of your skin everywhere on your body. And those are the B cells is about four to five inches into the cavity of your, your, your stomach here. And obviously the, the surface layer of B cells are about only at most one inch. They're probably more like a centimeter in mm -hmm. UVB light can only penetrate about a centimeter in UVA light can penetrate about four to six inches in. Okay. So vitamin D can only be made from UVB light. Okay. So if you have lots of naturally made UV, uh, vitamin D, that by default means that you're getting lots of UVB. That also means because of what I described earlier, it means that if you're getting lots of UVB, you're also getting a lot of UVA and those penetrate at specific levels. So your T cells are getting lots of UVA and your B cells are getting lots of UVB when you have lots of vitamin D naturally made in your body. Yeah. Those tune your immune system to go, hey, the B cells got this signal. That means there's lots of sunlight. The, the T cells got this signal, which means that we're clearly spending a lot of time outside. So now it's a double confirmation of high sunlight environment. That means that anything that you put in your mouth now can have an enormous variation of things because in the winter, everything is dead, right? There is less variation in things that you can put in your mouth or into your body. And when there is summertime, the variation goes exponentially up. Think of the jungle, right? Like the biodiversity in a jungle is incredible compared to the tundra, for example, right? Especially in the middle of winter. So essentially, your immune system is more accepting of a larger variation of foreign substances, uh, and only really foreign substances now get attacked instead of, for example, uh, your own gut system, right? Like if you have a leaky gut, or uh, another thing would be some kind of a, an allergic reaction to um, to things like um, uh uh, carbohydrates and things of that nature. A lot of people actually in the winter time, they, they, the first thing that I do is this is a thing that I find a lot is they're eating a lot of fruit, you know, because fruit is good for you, you know, just like vegetables. It's got a lot of micronutrients, et cetera. And I'm not debating those things. What I'm saying is your gut is not prepared for this enormous variation of fruit molecules that have more deuterium. They have a lot more things in them and your skin is not telling your gut, well, it's it's not telling your brain to be specific. And then your brain is not telling the gut of, hey, this thing, this fruit that you just consumed, it's totally fine. It's actually going, hey, the sunlight interacting at the skin is telling us, the brain, that there probably shouldn't be a lot of variation coming into the gut. So anything that's out of this scope, we should probably treat it as a foreign substance. I see a lot of that with people consuming a lot of fruit in winter months at high latitudes, you actually get an, an, an immune system response to it. That's actually what's yeah. going on. That, that's something I've noticed with myself is uh, being someone who's trying to put on body weight, consuming a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of fruits. In the winter times, I just can't tolerate as many carbohydrates. So I've been switching to more kind of higher protein, higher fats, and digestive issues have seemed to kind of clear up. Yep. And, and, that, and that, is, that is the mechanism I just described. It's because your skin and your gut are working together via the brain because your skin is actually wirelessly connected to your, to your brain. It sends wireless communications there because your skin and your brain actually come from the same tissue. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, when you're a fetus, 
it actually splits and the skin forms the exterior and your brain stays on top. So they begin as one tissue. That's called entanglement. This is something in physics that's well known. If an atom gets split, you can put one particle on the other side of the planet. And when it moves up and down, this particle moves up and down. That's entanglement, quantum entanglement. Your skin and your brain actually have that connection. They are wirelessly connected through quantum entanglement because a lot of the same atoms are in the skin that are in your brain. So when the skin senses certain things, it immediately tells the brain, hey, this is what to expect. And then we know that the brain is connected to the gut via the brain-gut axis through the vagus nerve. So it tells the gut what to expect as an income, right? Because the gut is the place where you're most compromised, right? Because that is exposed directly to the exter to, to external inputs and your gut is designed to let some of those in. It has to know what's the good guys and what's the bad guys. These, this is one of those mechanisms. Gotcha. Let's say that, let's say that someone over the course of winter, there's maybe a couple of days of the week where things are a little bit nicer. Could you kind of, in a way, auto-regulate it so that on those days you kind of make those more carbohydrate, carbohydrate rich? Rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you happen to get, you know, like, you know, so just a clear week, right? Like even if it's cold outside, just a clear week where it's, where it's sunny, you, you will notice if you, if you get the skin that is because light functions at the speed of light, right? For, for lack of a better word, light functions at the speed of light. So yeah, you can make changes very, very quickly. It doesn't take months, right? Like it, it goes from and, and being in Canada, you can attest to this, right? It goes from, Hey, there's snow on the ground to springtime. Uh, in a matter of weeks, right? Like you're, it, 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 what we call it is mud season. It goes from there's snow on the ground to mud season pretty dang quick. It doesn't happen over the course of two months. It, it can happen in the course of one or two weeks. Um, and so yes, this, this mechanism can be modulated, uh, especially if you live at high altitude, because altitude does play a role with how much UV light comes from from the from the sun through the atmosphere the higher your altitude even in the winter if you get a sunny day you're going to get a lot of uv light is that then because you, you mentioned about the speed of light is that transiently quickly changing the microbiome all the bacteria or is, is there is a lot of other things yes. going on too Nope, nope. It will directly change the microbiome. In fact, there's lots of uh, there's a couple studies with indigenous people where they actively fed them junk to see if it would change their microbiome, but they did not change their lifestyle. They told them to still do all the stuff. They what they noticed is the sunlight prohibited the junk food from changing their microbiome. In other words, your microbiome is controlled more by light. Than it is by food, and that actually makes sense intuitively because your microbiome, your microbiome is bacteria. Bacteria need light to grow, right? If you have a petri dish and you put it in a cold, dark place, that bacteria is not going to grow very well. But if you put it in a in a windowsill, for example, you're going to grow really good amounts of bacteria. It is actively controlled by sunlight way more than it is your food intake. Yeah, as, as athletes, as strength athletes, as bodybuilders. In many cases, we need to have higher carbohydrate intake. So do you have any kind of protocols or strategies that you can kind of use to kind of hack some of these lighter, uh, darker environment situations in the wintertime? Yeah, yeah. So so what what we go, uh, what I go with, what I default with is do what nature does, right? right? What, what kind of carbohydrates are easily available into the fall months and things of that nature? That's going to be anything that grows at the ground level or in the ground level, things like potato, things like squash, things like sweet potato, those types of carbohydrates you will find that in the winter do not affect you nearly as much as above ground carbohydrates and, and, and above, uh, head carbohydrates like fruit, for example. Um, so higher up the carbohydrate grows, the more you want to kind of bias away from that in the winter months and the lower down the carbohydrate grows closer to the ground or in the ground, the more you want to shift to those. If you still need to eat a lot of carbs, um, you will find that you digest those much more easily and with less upsetness in the stomach. Would you see any potential detriments to consuming higher fats kind of in the, in the winter month, months from like a health perspective? Swapping no, from a health those? perspective, I would say that's actually beneficial. Okay, even for like an athlete using potentially performance enhancing drugs that has more inflammation. Oh yeah, if, if you're using performance enhancing drugs, I would say it has no effect. 
uh, no effect in, in what direction, I guess. In a way that it wouldn't be negative at all, uh, because you because this, this doesn't give you uh, 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 how would I say it doesn't give you the leeway to eat enormous amounts of calories, right? Like if you if you overeat, you're still going to get fat, but because you ate fat versus carbs, that's not really going to have that big of a change in your body composition. But I will tell you this: if your stomach is messed up and it is and is not digesting things well, that will have a bigger negative outcome on performance on well-being because you, you and you probably noticed this right when your stomach isn't feeling well you're mentally also not feeling well absolutely right so yes i would say that shifting to a little bit more fats to make up for the calories that you're not able to consume from carbohydrates um is definitely a positive because your mental well-being will go up and i, I will tell you this if you are a true performance athlete you know bodybuilders Performance is debatable, but if you're a true performance athlete, <laughs> if you're a true performance athlete, this is your winning ticket, right? Like you train this all you want, but if this is lacking, you're going to have a bad day, right? So yes, I will say that shifting your, your eating habits to make sure that your digestion is on point is probably just as important or more important than how many carbohydrates you've consumed. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that. Um, can we talk a little bit about kind of red light devices and your kind of opinions on them? Are they are they powerful yeah, enough to actually have any substantial change and drive benefit, some of these positive benefits that we're talking about? Um, so yes, I would say that the 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 it, you have to vet them, right? And that's why I don't get into like uh, you know all red light therapy devices are good or bad or whatever. If the infrared therapy device is powerful enough, it will drive very good benefits. The problem is most of them, because not a lot of people know this stuff, right? Like they don't, they're not electrical engineers. They're not light engineers. So they, they can't tell the difference between a good red light therapy and a, and a bad red light therapy lamp. So I'm just going to put some details out for people to kind of be able to play back in here. Number one, you want at least two wavelengths of of infra of, of red light in the panel. Uh, and that's going to be a frequency somewhere in the 600s, like 660 or 670 nanometers, and another frequency in the 800s, ideally like 830 or 850. If the manufacturer does not list the frequencies, I do not buy it. I don't even consider it, right? Because this is a known thing in that industry. If, if these are the frequency wavelengths that you want to be giving to people, Somewhere in the 600s, somewhere in the 800s. So ideally, one of each. If you find a manufacturer that has two in the 600s and two in the 800s, that would qualify them as a better device. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, then the next thing that you want to, uh, so that's the, the frequencies, right? That's key. That's kind of like saying, uh, this meal has enough protein, right? If, if the, if the, if the meal has, 10 grams of protein. Well, I'm not going to eat that meal. I'm going to choose a meal that has, you know, 30 grams of protein or more. Right. So immediately that's what the, that's the best way to think about it. the, the frequencies are how much of the good stuff is in it. Right. Now, how intense is it? Right. That's the next thing that most panels are underpowered. And that measurement is measured in, uh, if they say it, right. Not all manufacturers will list it, but it's measured in microwatts per centimeter squared. That number should be as close to 200 as possible, and there should be a distance associated with it. So it should read something like 180 nanometers per centimeter squared at six inches. So what that means is that if you stand six inches away from that panel, it's going to deliver that amount of intensity, and you want it to be as close to 200 as possible. And if they list those, that's great. Now you can actually vet those. Most, most manufacturers won't list that. They'll just list the wattage but they try to confuse people. They'll list the LED wattage, right? Like when you buy an LED light bulb, it says, oh, this, this LED light bulb is comparable to a 60 watt light bulb. So they call it a 60 watt LED. Well, it doesn't put out 60 watts of light. Trust me. It can only put out the amount of watts of light that it consumes. It can't make light out of nothing, right? So mm -hmm. then you go look at the power consumption of that LED light bulb and it's only like eight watts. So that light bulb only gives out eight watts of power, even though they're saying it's equivalent to 60. They pull the same trick in infrared panels. So what you want to look at is the power consumption of that device. You want to pay about $1 per watt of consumption. Mm -hmm. 
if you're paying more than that, you're overpaying for that light. It just based right. on like the averages that you've seen. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So if I buy, if I'm paying five hundred dollars for a for an infrared therapy lamp, it better consume five hundred watts or more. Yes. And then yes. I better have those frequencies. And then if it happens the bonus give me the radiance, the intensity, then what I want is somewhere close to 200 microwatts per meter squared at six inches or greater. Because if, if it gives me 200 microwatts a meter squared, but it tells me that they measured that at three inches away, that means I got to stand right next to this damn thing to get the right ir- irradiance, right? But if they measured it at 12 inches, then it's like, oh, okay, I can stand 12 inches away from this and still get the right intensity benefit. In terms of tanning beds, do you ever have any requirements to use those to get some of those UVB lights, or do you see? You feel like that's uh, so if, if the tanning beds, uh, yeah. So you, it's kind of the same thing. You kind of gotta call the guy up or the people, you know, the tanning bed place where you're either the manufacturer or the place that you're going to. And you ideally, if you're going to use a tanning bed, you want both UVA and UVB light bulbs in the bed. If there's only UVB light bulbs, I would say. I, I probably wouldn't use them unless you absolutely need to. Like you actually have problems, right? Like you have you you took a vitamin D test and it's like in the tank. Plus you have re- bones that really hurt and stuff like that. If you have problems, then I would use it. But if you're just using it as a supplemental use case scenario, mm-hmm. if it's only UVB, I would probably not use it. I would just use outdoor light, right? Or I would go out of my way to buy something called a Spurdy D lamp. And that's just a lamp that has both UVA and UVB in it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's kind of like that, an infrared. That, Go ahead. Is that, is that different than your kind of regular morning waking light that you see? Oh, yeah. Selling? Yep. 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 It's, it's different because this, these, these are powerful enough that they will actually create a tan and create vitamin D production. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Um, one yep. more thing to ask then is, uh, cause right now, like you're Sorry. quite tanned. Is there, Potentially a detriment to being a little darker in, in cool, cooler climates then? Yes. It, it means that you need to spend more time outside. And the reason why I'm tan, right? Because I live in Wyoming. It's, I mean, there's snow all over right now, right? I don't get a lot of sun right now. The reason why I'm tan is because the more cold, right? And this is, this is physics involved. And this is a deuterium story. Um, the more cold, the more internal cellular light you make, including low level uv light so the reason why i'm still tan is because i get cold all i mean i'm i'm I'm, it's you know 30 degrees fahrenheit it's it's one degree celsius outside i'm i'm with my shirt off and i'm experiencing a lot of cold that's what makes your you know when your hands get red when you've been outside in the cold that's actual nitric oxide and the nitric oxide is being accompanied by internal uv light that your cellular metabolism is making so i'm actually tanning myself from the inside out. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. How because yeah. like now nowadays cold plunging and cold showers are very popular. How much cold exposure should someone get to kind of be sufficiently healthy? Yeah, I, I would say in the winter it's crucial to do it at least once a day for around three minutes if you're going to use water, right? So you don't really need to do it for more than three minutes if you're going to use water. Um, so like a cold plunge, for example. Um, and you, and the ideal time to do that is in the morning, sometime in the first two hours of waking up, because it's the same. It produces the same signaling effect as daylight. The, the bonus would be if you happen to have a cold plunge that's outside, right? So you get daylight plus some cold exposure. And if you're using water, you only need to do it for two, three minutes. Um, if you're using air, like I am, right? Like I'm not in, in the cold, but I am experiencing cold. Essentially that needs to be multiplied by 10. So, so three minutes multiplied by 10 equals about 30 minutes. So you can literally just walk outside, which is what I currently do. I have an elliptical that I just have outside and I just get on my elliptical and do 30 minutes of cardio every single morning as the sun is coming up. So that is my cold exposure. Plus I get exercise in, plus I get daylight in. I like to stack it. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yep. Oh, and and what you'll notice is after you do that consistently for about two weeks, it takes about two weeks to consistently do it every morning. Then what you will notice is that you tend to crave that stimulus. You tend to crave that because it creates neurotransmitters, same as morning daylight in, in the summertime. It creates dopamine, noradrenaline, adrenaline. It actually powers you for daytime activity, essentially, as as a as a diurnal mammal. 
So, so like you talked about this on the movie. I'm getting an echo on your end. Can you hear that? I don't, um, but I could probably... Let me see if I can change it to... It says I can't switch mics. I have two mics, but I was going to switch it, but it won't let me while I'm... It's okay. I'll just I'll speak over it. Um, okay. You, you talked about this a little bit before. Like With the cold exposure, things become a little bit more efficient, right? In terms of your ability to absorb light. Yes. Yes. And the, the, the way it does that is because it makes... When, when you expose yourself to cold, um, it, this goes back a little bit to the conversation of what I said about how when your eyes interpret high sunlight environment, it exposes more, uh, it changes the lipids in the cell membranes. Cold does the same thing at the skin level. So what it does is it preps the body for in understanding that there's going to be a low solar environment. So what it does is it changes the lipids in your cell membranes to make them more efficient at absorbing any kind of light. Um, and it also changes the central climastic nucleus to pay attention to temperature slightly more than daylight. So in other words, um, you disrupt your sleep and wake cycles less in the winter even under fake lighting and stuff like that, if you regularly experience cold. Whereas most people that don't experience cold, they actually struggle to sleep the most in the winter. And the reason is because their central climastic nucleus is still running on high solar time. So it's very sensitive to light because they're not experiencing cold. So any ex, you know, because the sun goes down at like 5 p.m. or whatever. So for, for three or four hours, they have all their artificial lights on at night and all of a sudden they have a hard time going to sleep is because their central climastic nucleus is paying attention to light still and it shouldn't be because there's a low solar yield outside. That's where cold actually changes that mechanism. It's a, it's an actual physical mechanistic, mechanistic switch that happens again at the skin because the skin wirelessly communicates to the brain. Okay. In terms of light exposure when people are outside, can these lights penetrate through clothing, or do you have to be skin, skin, skin out? Uh, the, the which lights? So when we're like outside walking, like do you have to have skin, the skin exposed to the light to see benefits of penetrating through clothing. The sunlight. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. This. Mm, it depends on the clothing. If it's if it's a natural like wool or cotton, it will penetrate through them. If it's synthetic, it won't. Um, because those, that's how, kind of how they're designed, right? Like, you know, these days they, they make, you know, hyper light materials that keep you super, super warm. And the reason is because they actually form a, a, a barrier, right? And so, yeah, sunlight won't penetrate through modern clothing very easily. It will penetrate through anything that's wool, anything that's cotton. Those are totally fine. They will penetrate through those. Uh, leather, leather will uh, penetrate through those. Anything that's natural will actually allow sunlight to penetrate it. Anything synthetic won't. Now, ideally, especially in the spring, you want to get a lot of skin in the game uh, because that actually will change your your whole biology to be ready for a high sunlight environment the quickest. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. You also you so, talked a little bit about how you can kind of change your training stimulus in the winter versus summer times based on some of these mechanisms that we're talking about. I think in particular you said like winter times, fall times, maybe may be more beneficial for kind of uh, aerobic based performances, whereas summer times we might be able to better kind of align our nutrition training to more kind of hypoxic based styles of training. Is that something you can kind of expand on a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in the winter, because, uh, the respiratory change, if again, winter meaning you are experiencing some level of cold on a chronic daily basis, right? I got to define it that way because it's not enough because, because we, we have the capability of living indoors all the time, right? So I got to be clear on that. If you do induce cold exposure on a daily basis, then the electron transport chain of the mitochondria gets tightened up um, and becomes more efficient, which means that aerobic capacity can, has room to grow big time. So I do a lot of aerobic, I do aerobic training pretty much year round, but in the winter is when I actively can, can see the biggest performance boost on my aerobic training. I can literally, you know, run a mile or two just nasal breathing the whole time, right? Without ever having to open my mouth. That's very hard to do in the summertime um, in terms of training adaptions, right? Because of 
lots of different effects as far as like heat shock proteins and things of that nature. But in the winter is when you will be able to train those adaptions and you will be able to maintain them come around the summertime. Now on the flip side, in the summertime, if you are experiencing good solar yield, just like I explained earlier, your melanin on your skin will charge, separate hydrogen and oxygen from themselves. And when it does that, you get free hydrogen, you get free oxygen, and you get two electrons, actually four electrons, sorry. So you actually get free energy. So now you can train more hypoxically, right? So you can do a lot more uh, glycolytic type training and and actually squeeze out more juice out of that, right? Um, I think uh, think of it almost like the concept of like uh, some Russian uh, training centers where they actually pump oxygen into the training center so that you can train at a higher degree inside the training center so that you can create a much ro more robust adaption. This is the same concept. In the wintertime, you can create a much more robust aerobic adaption. And in the summertime, you can create a much more robust glycolytic adaption. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, it's something that not many people really consider, but I think if you're trying to inch out a couple couple percent percentages more in terms of performance, it can be like the difference difference maker in terms of winning and losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is a high level concept of periodization of, of training throughout the year, right? Like especially if you live somewhere where there's four seasons. Yes, if you're, this is a concept that shouldn't be overlooked if you are at that level of of performance. Yes. Okay. Is there anything that we can look at blood work wise to kind of help? determine whether or not we're getting in enough sunlight in the winter times beyond vitamin D levels? Like, is there anything in particular that's really kind of negatively impacted if we're not, if our circadian rhythms aren't properly aligned, or is it just going to be like a systemic burden? Let me plug in my laptop and I will answer that. So let me quickly do that. And that way we don't get cut off. And then I will think about that. But yes, I do believe it's not so much about the sunlight in the, in the, in the winter, right? Uh, because, uh, it's not about solar yield. It's more about site exposure. So there is some blood works markers that we can, that I can tell very easily. And it actually has more to do with, hold on a second. You'll get to see the inside of my house now. All right. There we go. So in terms of blood work, right? In terms of blood work, the things that we see in the winter that are telltale signs is actually the opposite of vitamin D in terms of what I'm looking for in the winter time is signs that you're indoors too much, right? The telltale sign there is actually fasted insulin. Fasted insulin is a marker that goes up and up and up when you expose yourself to more blue light, more artificial light. And if it gets above I don't know the units that it would be in Canada, uh, but in, in American numbers, um, let, let me see if I can bring those up as far as um, the insulin would be measured as uh, international units, international units per uh, milliliter. So if your international units per milliliter are um, more than about five on your fasted insulin, that tells me that you're chronically inducing uh, glucose uh, being released into the the bloodstream from the liver through through just storage of the liver because blue light is a signal that normally happens under normal circumstances only in the middle part of the day and it's essentially it's a uh, it's an evolutionary me mechanism that has to do with um, preparing you for essentially another half of the day, right? So the middle part of the day is the main part of the day where you're going to experience the most blue light uh, under natural circumstances. And that essentially tells the biology, hey, there's a whole another half a day left. Even if this person hasn't ate or doesn't have any food available, we want to supply it with enough energy substrate so that it can find food or can find shelter. And so what it does is it dumps glycogen into the bloodstream. And then that naturally raises insulin. The problem is, that is the whole time that you're exposed to blue light. Under normal circumstances, that's only for like three hours in the middle of the day. But when you're indoors in the winter all the time, it's happening the whole time. So insulin will chronically go up and up and up. So if your insulin value is at a five and then a couple months later, your insulin value is at a seven, it's telling me that you are actively 
releasing more and more glycogen into the bloodstream and your insulin level required to control that glucose is having to go more and more and more. Gosh, you'd probably see some negative effects that on like hemoglobin A1C then too, potentially in fasted glucose. Yeah, yeah. So fasted glucose or this fasted insulin is a leading indicator and then glucose and then A1C. So A1C is a lagging indicator. Um, so I tend to look at fasted insulin first if it's available because it is a leading indicator. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is there anything is else there? that you would look at? Uh, yeah. So the other thing that I look at is um, BUN creatinine ratio, right? Okay. If your BUN creatinine ratio is high, uh, and we see that your BUN is the, the cause of that because it's a ratio, right? So that could be that your creatine, creatinine is low or that your BUN is high, right? Mm -hmm. So the BUN, if the BUN creatinine ratio is flagged high, then I go and look at the BUN directly and the creatinine directly. If the BUN is elevated, it tells me that your urea cycle is functioning in overdrive. Um, and, and so that's why your blood urea nitrogen is elevated because your urea cycle is trying to, uh, compensate for not being very efficient. Remember what I said, uh, when you are experiencing cold, it makes mitochondrial processes more efficient when they don't become efficient or when they become inefficient, you're going to dump more urea out, more nitrogen. You're going to dump more nitrogen. Essentially, have you heard of, um, protein misfolding and things of that nature. Yes, at the liver, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, at the liver, yep. And so protein misfolding is nitrogen that's, because that's what protein is. Protein, protein is where you get your nitrogen backbones for everything. Um, so when it's misfolded, it's not useful for anything. It's gotta be excreted. That's what urea is, is gotcha. urea. Gotcha. So, so when that goes up, it tells me your mitochondria is not folding proteins correctly, which means the efficiency of the mitochondria is going down and not up. So you need more cold exposure, right? So it, because you asked what in blood work can tell me that I'm not spending enough time outside in the winter. And that's, that would be it because winter is cold. So when cold is actively being experienced, you will notice Mitochondrial efficiency should be going up if you're experiencing the right amount of cold. Mm -hmm. In terms of like actual cold temperatures and, and sensation and whatnot, like do you need to get to a point where like where we're shivering, or is that, or is there like a certain temperature? Yeah. So at first, right. So I described like a two-week training window, if you want to call it that, a, a two-week adaption window. In that two-week adaption window, uh, if you're not shivering, right, if you don't take it, and that's why I said about three minutes of water cold exposure where the water temperature is about 55 degrees or less there's really no need to go lower than 55 degrees but it needs to be at least 55 degrees if it is 55 degrees or less uh you will notice that at about the three minute mark you are starting to shiver and that's really all that's needed now at the same point if you don't have a cold exposure like a water tank or a cold exposure tank uh and you're using air you will notice that that takes about 10 times longer so about at 30 minutes is when you'll notice the air temperature uh, will start to make you shiver. And that's what you want to induce in that first two weeks so that you make sure that you make the adaption as quick as possible because it kind of sucks to get cold but not get the adaption. Yeah, so then you can kind of follow more of a kind of a maintenance dose to maintain those adaptations going forward. Yeah, yeah. And then the maintenance dose could be literally just stepping outside for five or 10 minutes while you drink your coffee. I, and, and like I said, once you, once you have made the adaption, you almost tend to kind of crave it because it's what the adaption is that you've told the central climastic nucleus that it's winter time. And so then the cl central climastic nucleus starts to line up its pituitary manufacturing plant, right? Your hormones, your neurotransmitters with that cold exposure event. So then the cold exposure event starts to backwards be wired to neurotransmitter production. So you almost start to almost lean into it more mm -hmm. gotcha in in summer times does it make sense to continue with these practices or you want to kind of wean yourself off because it'll be a different signal than your as long as the timing of the day doesn't get disrupted there isn't really a detriment so in other words as long as you continue to get cold exposure in the morning there's no disruption um but there is no need for it either, unless you have some kind of an illness, right? Like uh, maybe you're type 
to diabetic, right? And you're trying to reverse diabetes. Like you can do that with cold exposure and you can accelerate that with cold exposure and sunlight. So AKA doing cold exposure in the summer will accelerate bringing baseline insulin levels down. Not for everyone. Like for example, if you have a mitochondrial haplotype of L, so L0, L1, L2, L3, that means that you're African or Indian, right? Like from, from the continent, India, uh, then you will probably have to change your latitude if you have type 2 diabetes. But anybody other that, that has other mitochondrial haplotypes that are uncoupled, yes, you could use cold combined with high sunlight environment to reverse type 2 diabetes. So in certain cases, I would say I would lean into that scenario. But in other cases, if you're a perfectly healthy individual, no real need to it unless you just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of uh, supplementation, are there, are there any particular supplements that you like to use in the winter climates for people at the, the more northern latitudes that you find beneficial, generally speaking? Yeah, I, I guess I guess you could uh, any anything that continues to make because remember the theme of of cold is the electron transfer chain becomes more efficient, mitochondria become more efficient. So things like specific types of magnesium can, can obviously help with ATP production and mitochondria at the mitochondria. Yeah, yeah. So that one's going to be good if you happen to be somebody that suffers from uh, seasonal depression, right? Like in the winter, right? Right. So that, that points to specifically at the brain level, you're lacking some capabilities of making ATP and stuff like that. And, uh, L-thorinate, uh, actually penetrates the blood brain barrier. So that would be something that I would use for somebody like that. If you don't have any, like, you're not predisposed to like seasonal affective disorder or anything like that, then just a regular magnesium glycinate would work or a magnesium orotate. Uh, because that will also get into the uh, mitochondria pretty well. Um, other uh, other supplements that I kind of blankly recommend, kind of not necessarily all the time. You can if you want. That's not they're not a problem. It's like CoQ10 because that actively uh, is one of the transporters from the cytochrome two to cytochrome three. So it will increase the efficiency at the mitochondrial level um, on on top of what you're already getting from uh, external environment. So things of that nature, I tend to not really use that many supplements uh, unless I'm dealing with something that I'm trying to fix with somebody or things of that nature. But those are supplements that I actively use as just, you know, kind of a healthy individual. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are, uh, there are other things, you know, if you know what you're doing, right. Like I, I mentioned how melanin is a very important substrate here uh, in this whole biological talk that we've had things like melanotan too. Uh, used appropriately can actually accelerate um, some adaptions that you might be looking for as an athlete. Things like uh, using a little bit of melanotan right at the tail end of winter going into a strong solar environment will predispose you to gathering more sunlight and uh, more solar energy much more quickly uh, than waiting until you naturally tan your skin up. But I wouldn't use it in the winter, in the dead of winter, because that actually will make it harder for you to get any benefit from the little bit of sunlight that you are getting. So you got to kind of know what you're doing with them. But yeah, there are some unique circumstances where some peptides or some some supplements can be very helpful. So, so for instance, I'm going to Mexico in a month's time. So leading up to that trip, maybe consider using some melanotan to, to kind of prime the body to be able to kind of be more protected against the, the sunlight. Uh, more protected and also more efficient at gathering that high solar yield, right? Because you're going to go quickly from low solar yield to high solar yield. So inducing a little bit. And, and the, the, the most potent thing is you want to pair the melanotan with cold exposure. So like the two weeks before, uh, you, you, you would be like, Hey, I'm going to intend a lot of skin exposed to cold for, you know, 10 minutes every day. And then I'm going to take a little bit of melanotan. Daily, not not enough to change your skin color because you don't want your skin color to change while you're in a low solar, solar environment. You just want to prep it for alpha MSH to be slowly elevated. And then when you land in Mexico, you'll get dark much, much quicker and you'll gather more solar energy much quicker. What kind of doses would you be doing on a daily basis paired with that 10 minutes of, of cold? Do you know what's uh, on your head? Yeah, some, somewhere around uh, 200 micrograms. A day, okay. 
Yeah. That's two, two, 200, 250. What, you know, it, it really depends on how it breaks down depending on the size, you know, how many milligrams are in the bottle, but somewhere between 200 and 300 is, is the sweet spot that you can take daily for a couple of weeks that won't affect skin color immediately then. Okay. Awesome. I need to take off because I have to head to work, but thank you very much for your time, David. Really appreciate it as, as always. I uh, learned a okay. lot today. Um, if people want to find out more about you, where can they reach you and learn more about you? Um, so the easiest places are definitely on Instagram. So there is uh, David Herrera 1119 on Instagram. That's my personal channel. That's that's where I put like little shorts from Eurus, right, that you that you watched. That's also where I put some of my personal training. And then as far as like specifically about sunlight and about cold, that I do have a second uh, Instagram channel called The Solar Athlete. And that's where I post a lot of uh, like scientific content of like how some of these mechanisms work you know with some pictures and stuff it is instagram so it's hard to kind of like really detail it out um, but on that same solar athlete um instagram there is also a bio a link in the bio where you can actually go and download modules specifically and the modules are video and audio that are more actionable in nature um and, and they're labeled by, hey, if you want to know about specifically about how to get the most out of sunlight, and there's a module for that. Specifically about cold, there's a uh, module for that. Specifically around electromagnetic fields or grounding. So every, almost, they do almost everything with all the detailed bits that we've talked about today. I wish I knew about this before we had this call. I could have did a bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, sorry about that. I'm, I'm not great at I'm not, I'm not great at advertising, but, but yes, the solar athlete Instagram is where there's that. And then, like I said, uh, in, in that there's individual modules. They're about 20 minutes, 20 minutes long. So they're a short, short listen that you can download the audio or the video and there's 12 of them. Um, and then at the same time, you know, I also in that same, uh, one I offer for like $90, you get all of the modules spread out over two months and, uh, you also get a, a, members q a so once a month i get on on a sunday and answer questions for anybody that's watched the modules and stuff like that awesome great stuff yep. thanks again man have a great rest of your day and i'll, I'll talk to you soon awesome you too okay. bye